What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm, nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, AKA John and John. We've got week four of the college football games, plus a lot to talk about who Lincoln Riley is and isn't letting into his news conferences these days, and a possible Pac-2 solution forming on the horizon. I'm John Canzano. You can read my work at johnconzano.com. I'm here, as always, with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. Find him at pac12hotline.com. we got to start with the curious case of Lincoln Riley and the reporter, of the Southern California News Group, Luca Evans. Um, Earlier this week, we find out that Lincoln Riley and USC have suspended access for Luca Evans, a reporter, for two weeks, citing what USC felt were multiple violations of its policy for media, for reporters who were on the beat, blah, blah, blah. They were upset mainly because he was talking to student-athletes and quoting student-athletes outside of news conferences, They were also upset that he happened to call Carol Folt, the president of USC, by her first name in a news conference. There was just a whole litany of things that USC was upset with. And instead of having a conversation with him, they suspended him for two weeks. Wilner, first, before we get to the resolution here, and it's got a weird twist, what did you make of the initial suspension by USC? A complete and total overreaction. I mean, suspending uh, reporters access and credentials for two weeks is that's kind of scorched earth and uh it just was did not at all fit uh the situation usc i think just they had no there was no balance administratively you know uh with with lincoln riley and and the media relations folks and they just kind of what they flew off the handles i think and and so it and then it got it got bad, right? Because it went public, and then the president got involved publicly, and you knew once that happened, there was going to be some changes. Yeah, and and you know, for for full disclosure, like you know, I wasn't aware that a team could suspend a reporter. I know that you could take someone's credential away, or if you if you view that they're not being professional. But a lot of what this reporter was accused of doing, I think, is just good reporting, good observation. He's not supposed to close his ears. He's not supposed to close his eyes. He's, he's there to serve readers, and I'm here to serve readers, and you're here to serve readers. We don't work for the schools. We shouldn't be propaganda machines. And in USC, it looked to me like they were trying to send a message to media. They want to spoon-feed the stories. They want to control the narrative. And I think it was a bad dynamic, too, that you have Jen Cohen, the new athletic director, on the job a very short time, and you have a football coach who's very powerful. And the football coach, you know, obviously wasn't happy with this and uh, was treating the reporter like he was a student you know, you know, trainer on the football team and suspending him for two weeks. And uh, the uh, subsequent fallout, though, a few days later, ends up with USC rescinding the suspension and Lincoln Riley saying that, you know, he realized this was a bad idea and there was a better way to handle it. And I got to go back and, you know, because I was talking to different SIDs, Wilner, around the conference who were all shaking their heads and saying, that this would not happen on their watch. This is a conversation between a media member and the SID staff or the coach, and this could have been handled way differently. And I have to wonder how the retirement of longtime USC SID Tim Tessalone factors into this. In your mind, how does that play a role? 
It's a huge role. Tim is, uh, you know, a Hall of Famer, uh, one of the best uh, sports information directors, you know, in the history of the sport and navigated USC in a very difficult media environment for decades. Uh, you you, ha- you cannot have a situation where your football coach is, you know, dictating your treatment and relations with the reporters at this level. There has to be some kind of balance internally from your media relations crew. And I think that was clearly lacking here. And uh, it certainly would, I would be shocked if it would have happened if Tim was in charge. But be that as it may, you know, it's a it's a good lesson for USC going forward, right? They they gotta they gotta be measured in their response, right? The res- if somebody breaks a rule, and obviously USC's got a lot of rules, and Lincoln Riley is very paranoid, like many coaches, about the media. Uh they've gotta be, you know, the response has got to be appropriate to the what they perceive as the t- transgression. And what we may not perceive as transgression at all. And it's interesting because USC's game on Saturday is at Arizona State. And I noted on social media that Doug Tamro, the sports information director at Arizona State, was asked on Twitter, you know, would he credential the reporter? And he said, not a problem. We're credentialing him. So I, I actually think like that plays a role. The public shaming that was happening uh, plays a role. Um, I reached out to the Orange County Register and asked what they thought tipped this. And Todd Harmonson, the uh, the senior editor there, said, um, you know, he, he had written some letters to the administration, of course. There was a lot of public backlash. But I think the general consensus is that Lincoln Riley or Jennifer Cohen, the AD, probably just realized they needed to move past this and it wasn't going to happen with the suspension in place. So I think they end up in the right place. And maybe it's a teachable moment for them, but um, I think it was. Just well, I a, think they yeah. ended up in the right place. This is just my impression. Carol Folk got wrapped into it publicly by USC because they told uh, the register that one of the issues was that the reporter called her Carol and not Dr. Folt. And once that got, once the president got roped into it publicly and was that piece of it was getting mocked uh, you know i called it carol gate on twitter and and there you know once she was involved it was going to end because there's no chance carol fault was going to let her name be dragged through this for two weeks until the suspension ended so <laughs> in some ways us usc kneecapped itself here by going public with the fact that the president was involved they they set the course for the president to end this thing it's i think it's so ridiculous that that, oh, was, that was even brought up empress the supreme leader whatever yeah whatever we're <laughs> supposed to call you i don't know let's let's pivot to Washington State and Oregon State. Uh, I wrote a piece today at johnconzano.com about scheduling. Of course, we've talked about a possible reverse merger with the Mountain West Conference, but when we had Pat Chun in a great interview earlier this week on our podcast, I had asked him how difficult it is to try to schedule for 2024 if they remain a conference of two and if that's the scenario that they go with in the short term. And I ended up on the phone with a guy named Dave Brown, who is a scheduling guru. He is the guy. Like, had you heard of him before? Because Dave Brown, his name kept popping up, Wilner. I was reporting this Oregon State, Washington State stuff. 
Uh, yeah, I've I've talked to Dave in the past uh, about schedule schedule stuff. He is he is the master of of college football scheduling. He worked, used to work for ESPN. He's got this great program. Lots of lots of schools use. He is he is the the czar of scheduling. He told me, sixty five year old guy living in Austin, Texas. This is his job, you know. He told me, look, it's not the easiest thing in the world because you've got two teams that are trying to put together a schedule. He's previously said that he helped UConn a couple of years ago do it. You know, when it left and the Big East thing was uh, unfolding, he, he helped UConn as a independent put together a schedule. But he said two teams complicated it some, not the easiest thing in the world, but he said it can be done. And he said we'd fully expect to be able to do this successfully. He talked about the fact that you've got Big Ten, ACC, and Big 12 schools that are now dealing with new membership. You've got some potential crossovers, like Utah was supposed to play BYU and Baylor season in the non-conference. Um, he believes that, that Washington State and Oregon State could pick those games up. Stanford and Cal both need another non-conference game. There's a possible there possibility there. He also mentioned um, that there's like 25 other schools, like Army, Auburn, Boise State, BYU, uh, Mississippi State, Louisville, Washington even has an open date. He says there are there are plenty of possibilities out there. He also thinks they could play a home and home, and just try to get by for one year, playing it as the Pac-2 conference. Yeah, maybe they should think about the Huskies uh, or the Cougars should schedule the Huskies. That that'd be an interesting game to see next year. Um, I, here's what I think: there's probably six, eight, even ten options that the Cougars, Beavers, and Mountain West schools are considering. And they're not going to be it, – it could be a long time before they can finalize this whole thing because it depends on the court situation with the Pac-12 and disclosure of assets and all that kind of thing. But bottom line is it is going to come down – we're talking about institutions of higher education that are inherently risk-averse. And this is going to be something like that, Pac-2 is a big risk. It's a lot riskier than just joining the Mountain West uh, in time for next season, for instance. Are they going to be willing to take on the risk, the the financial risk, competitive risk, all that stuff? I don't know. I, I think they're smart to think about it uh, for sure, but I am not convinced that when push comes to shove, uh, these inherently risk-averse institutions even though these are incredibly chaotic and uncertain times for them, uh, I'm I'm not convinced they're going to be willing to do it. But we'll see. It'd be great if they do. It'd be absolutely fascinating. For me, I think that that risk is alleviated substantially if the financial assets are there. If they're not there, I think 100% you've got to go where the money is and you've got to consider a reverse merger or whatnot. But if you can unpack the Pac-12 conference finances and get some resolution. If you don't get a lot of opposition from the existing members about what happens after they leave, then I think you have a, a potential to alleviate some of that risk. But I totally agree with your assessment that these are not gamblers, all right? The Pac-12, they're not sitting at the craps table. They're not standing there. They're not, you know, I don't know what the crap, what they're playing, but they're playing a very conservative game in the casino if they're playing at all. 
I think that if they get the money, if they have the NCAA tournament units, if they have the financial guarantee that they can bridge to 2026 or so, I do think they will go make a run at 2024 and, and trying to be the pack too. But you're right. It's one of like, I think it's more like five or seven options that include a reverse merger or possibly taking on teams. But I know there's some interested parties in the Mountain West Conference that are looking over going, if they can survive one season, it lowers the exit fee in the Mountain West Conference and a, a viable path to building the conference back to eight teams or 10 teams suddenly emerges. Right. Well, then that's another piece of it. Would they want to just take the top football schools in the Mountain West? Would they want all 12 schools in the Mountain West? Uh, I, I just don't know. And and the finances are part of it. But that's also, you know, they have to take the, the TV piece into consideration too. figure out what is going to be the most valuable inventory for potential media partners, whether that is Fox and CBS essentially shifting their deal with the Mountain West over to a rebuilt Pac-12, or if it's Apple getting back involved, I don't know, but they have to assess, you know, several gigantic issues all at once while they're waiting for the Pac-12 to provide them with some, some vital information. And that obviously is taking way longer than they expected. And, uh, you know, there's I have yet to hear a good explanation as to why the Pac-12 is not just handing over every single document that the schools uh, that the schools want. Give me you know, you've had some really good reporting on letters that have gone back and forth and have come uh, come to light. The, the latest being some correspondence between Washington and the Pac-12 conference as it pertained to their board seat. What did you learn there? Well, yeah, Washington and part of the court documents from the Washington State and Oregon State lawsuit against the conference, part of the court documents uh, are letters, are the actual emails that were sent by uh, Washington's president and Oregon's uh, vice president, general counsel, to the Pac-12 on the morning of August 4th, saying that we are not going to approve a grant of rights agreement. Uh, basically, which means we're out. And in that, they said we expect to be treated, uh, at, you know, as properly as members of the conference. But we acknowledge that we are not going to be participating in strategic, longer term strategic matters that impact the Pac-12 after uh, August 1st of 2024. So they admitted in writing to the conference, we know we're out of the discussions on the long-term stuff. So to me, that that indicates, you know, that just strengthens the case that Washington State and Oregon State have, uh, that the other schools have effectively resigned their board seats. Now, the Pac-12 is pushing back on that. Um, well, and that's why we're, we're watching this this court case unfold, but I thought it was very interesting that the two schools acknowledge that they're not going to participate in long-term discussions because now everything is a long-term discussion. For Washington State and Oregon State, every dime is not just a dime in this fiscal year, but it's a dime that they need for beyond next summer. So, you know, how are you going to define a a an immediate issue versus a longer-term issue for the purposes of the board? I don't know. I guess that's what the injunction is going to do. He's John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, Pac12Hotline.com. I'm John Canzano. You can read my work 
at johnconzano.com. Let's jump into the week four games. We've got some big ones. This, I, found, I found this to be the most difficult week to predict games. When you look at the schedule, did you walk away feeling the same way? Well, I just think it's weird that there are, what, three games with point spreads of 20 or more? That is out of six, right? And uh, and the fact, the fact that Colorado is the same uh, size underdog as Cal. Cal at Washington, 21, 22 points, something like that. Colorado at Oregon, 21, 22 points. That's that's a little bit bananas. Uh, but it's a very it's gonna be a very interesting uh week for sure. We should start. What's the f- first game up? Let's start Colorado, Oregon. It's 1230 on ABC. And the Ducks are a 21 point favorite. It's gonna be Oregon all day long on the offensive side of the ball. I have no doubt that Bo Nix and the Oregon offense are going to move the ball and score points. They're gonna be in the forties. They might get in the 50s against Colorado. It's been a great year for Coach Prime. I felt like the end of week three on last Saturday night, double overtime, there was some emotional exhaustion that had set in. Of course, some physical exhaustion with Colorado. And I just kind of wonder if this is the game where they walk in on fumes and they walk into a hostile environment against a very good offense and they struggle. I do have some pause with the 21-point spread. If it's 20-and-a-half, 21, I think it's getting too big. I think that's a lot of points, especially with an offense in Shadour Sanders that can score a little. I think Colorado can score about 21 to 24 points in the game. So the question becomes, does Oregon, does Oregon get to 42? Does Oregon get to 45? I got into my head. I would say yes, but it gives me some pause with the 21 points. Oregon wins this game easily. Colorado um, is is fighting to try to cover. Maybe a backdoor cover late. I don't know, but I, I think Oregon wins pretty easily. Yeah, I'm with you. I got Colorado because it's just a, a lot of points. I, I, to me, the big issue is how is Colorado going to hold up on the line of scrimmage against Oregon's offensive and defensive lines, right? And that's because uh, these are the best lines that, that the Buffs have played all season. Uh, tons of blue chip, blue chip prospects on both sides for the Ducks. And, you know, are they going to be able to block Jordan Birch and Brandon Dorless? I just, I don't think they are. And I certainly don't think they're going to be able to stop Oregon's running game. And Oregon, all they got to do is, if they average six, seven yards a, a run, just plow down the field, keep Shadur Sanders off, off the field, and, and wear down Colorado's defense. Game number two going on at the same time. UCLA is at Utah, 12 o'clock Saturday on Fox. Utah's a four-and-a-half-point favorite. Wilner, what do you see? Well, I mean, is Cam Rising playing? Is this finally the week he comes back? And if it is, how's he gonna play? How sharp will he be? Will he have will he have season opening mistakes, even though everybody else, it's their uh, their fourth game. So I think that's a big issue. It's also, I think, interesting that you know, this can, any other year, and this would clearly be the number one game on the board in the Pac twelve this week, right? Undefeated teams both ranked, uh, and yet I mean, it's really number three in the pecking order, in my mind, uh, just kind of tells you how how deep the conference is with A, good teams, and and B, incredibly compelling storylines. UCLA is a tough matchup for Utah, and I, that spread of four and a half, it, it, again, the rising thing is big there, but it troubles me because I do think UCLA can play this game close. I think Utah wins. I think Rice-Eccles Stadium is the defining factor there. I, I, I don't like picking against Utah at home, but I'll take U, UCLA in four and a half 
and Utah in a very close game winning that one. I think it's going to be a great game. That could be like a Pac-12 conference championship game or a semifinal game if we if you had a Final Four. But it, I think it's going to be really interesting to see if some of the Colorado-Oregon viewership migrates over if Colorado-Oregon ends up as a blowout. And, you know, do the eyeballs and do, does the viewership end up on Fox on Saturday? Yeah, and that's another interesting piece to this week, right? Six games and four of them are on over-the-air networks. One ABC and three Fox. I think Fox has got a Pac-12 triple header between uh, USC, Utah, Oregon State, Washington State, and then uh, and then the SC Arizona State game, which you know is just. Uh, I'm not sure that's ever happened. I have to look it up, but it it again tells you what the the conference. Everybody wants to watch this conference this year. Four o'clock game on Fox. Let's stay on Fox. Oregon State at Washington State on the Palouse. Oregon State is a two-and-a-half to three-point favorite, both 3-0, and both teams playing with a lot of confidence and momentum. Wilner, what happens? Well, see, I think I think Washington State's playing better. Now, you tell me what you think was going on with the Beavers against San Diego State because they didn't look that sharp. I, I just think Washington State's playing better, and I like them getting points and at home, so I've got the Cougars. Oregon State looked flat to me in the San Diego State game. And you also had Brady Hoke, who's a really good defensive coach, on the other side there. I yeah. suspect that Oregon State was trying some new things, trying uh, to implement some new things. It didn't go well. They looked clunky. They looked flat. And they still won the game going away, like, you know, 26 And So I asked Jake Dickert, Washington State coach, what he saw, and he said that he thought San Diego State did a good job of doing some new things defensively. I think this is a big one for DJ Uyunglele and and his progression. This is the kind of game that he could potentially struggle in. He's looked at different times uncomfortable. He looked great in the opener, looked less comfortable last week. Uh, I think it's a really big game for him. I still have a hard time picking against Oregon State in this game, but I think Oregon State wins it. I think they win it by a field goal. That's why I would say pay attention to the point spread. If it's two and a half, I'll take the Beavers to cover. If it's three... I think you start thinking about Washington State at three or more points. But oh, no, for sure. This game's in the 20s, though. I think it's 27-24, something like that. Yeah, yeah. The under total is 56.5. Under is very enticing. And it, it'll be, to me, Oregon State, obviously they got to run the ball, but the, you know how are they going to protect the edges with Ron Stone and Brennan Jackson from Washington State? That's that's going to be a big – Well, they, last big, year they dominated. Like, Jake Dickert pointed this out. He said last year they dominated – Washington State at the point of attack. The offensive line dominated. Can they do that again, or was it just a was it a you know a one off last season? That's a you know pay attention to which way the piles are fa- falling early in the game. Yeah. that's a and that's only that I think that's what Oregon State's only win in the series in like the last ten years. Yeah. They have a hard time winning in Pullman. That's they haven't done it in a decade. So keep an eye on that one. But I think a really close game, really good game. Uh, let's move on to Arizona at Stanford. Pac-12, only game on the Pac-12 networks all all weekend. Uh, Arizona's 11.5-point favorite at Stanford. I mean, Stanford's last two weeks basically speak for themselves, right? I mean, obliterated at SC and then losing at home to Sacramento State. They've got got very little talent, very little size and speed, you know, compared to what they need. Uh, I, I think, but I think I'm not convinced Arizona's offense will execute at the level needed 
to cover 11 and a half. I think Arizona's going to win, but I don't know. I could see it being tighter than it probably should be. I've got Arizona big in this one. I, th- I think they win by 14. I think they cover. I just can't pick a Stanford team that lost to Sacramento State and looked so bad against USC. And so I'm going something like 34-20 Arizona over Stanford. Cal at Washington, 7:30 ESPN. Washington favored by 21 or so. What do you see there? Well, that's a huge number given what this series is, has done in the last five, four, five years, right? They have one close game after another. Even last year when Washington was rolling, only only beat Cal by seven. Uh, so, I, you know, Justin Wilcox, for whatever reason, he always has the Bears ready to play the Huskies. I just don't know that they can – they can hold up. I mean, that Washington, they are an offensive machine. And Cal's going to be going up there with a rookie quarterback and Sam Jackson. And, you know, I just – I don't know that – to me, it's one of those deals where it's fairly close for, for two quarters, maybe three quarters. But Cal's defense is not going to get enough support from Cal's offense. And it's just going to – eventually it's going to wilt – and and all of a sudden, Husky's going to score. You know, they could score 14 points in th- 30 seconds. I, I feel the same way about Justin Wilcox as a coach and in the way that they play in these games. And for that reason, I'm going to take the 21 and Cal. And I think I think Cal defensively has had some success, uh, you know, more success than others. I still think Washington scores in the low 30s. But I'll take 21, and I'll hope that Cal can get 17 or 20 points in this game and, and cover. So... Washington wins the game. Cal covers. How about that? Huskies in the low 30s. That that is usually they're in the low 30s by half. I know, but I just think it's it's Wilcox. It's the way they play. I mean, and I and he tends to keep those games closer. And I look at Cal and the points that they gave up last season, even even yeah. even earlier this season. Uh, they you know defensively that that's not where the problem is for Cal. They no. need to score points, and but I don't think they'll yep. get more than about 17 or 20 off Washington, but. Nope. You, you give me 21 points in Justin Wilcox? Last game, USC at ASU, 730 on Fox. Trojans are fair. I can't even say this with a straight face. Trojans are favored by 34 and a half points. Now, I went deep into my books, let's call them, uh, to figure out the last time ASU was an underdog of 30 or more. And I went back 25 years, couldn't find an example. And in fact... They ASU has not been a, a home dog of more than 20 in the last quarter century. And here they are, 34 and a half. Oh, my. And I, I don't know that it's enough. <laughs> what do you think? No, it's not enough. It's not. It, 35 is not enough. It's going to be – I have USC at 56, Arizona State maybe 10. I, I think they USC covers this spread. I just was not impressed with Arizona State a week ago. Uh, offensively, they don't have it. And they're not going to be able to keep up. Yeah, I mean, they've got – I'm not sure who's playing quarterback for them, but it's not Jaden Rashada. Watching them last week was like watching the Niners in the NFC Championship game with quarterback situation. So, ASU's got all kinds of issues, injuries, quarterback injuries, the postseason ban. I mean, it's just it's just a tough situation all around. And and certainly, if you're, if you're look, kind of casting ahead – uh, Stanford and ASU certainly look like at this point that they are going to be, you know, the the bottom of the conference, and they don't play each other. Uh, so the question, you know, right, you have they, the if potential they did, for if they played this week, who wins that game? Stanford, ASU. I think Stanford would because I, I agree. I, I just ASU's quarterback situation, yeah. but the fact that they don't play each other 
does open the possibility of two 0-9 teams. Now, I don't think that'll happen. 0-9 is pretty is hard to do. Two 0-9s, uh, really difficult. But And we've talked about this before. How bad the bottom is matters because of the top. And because of, you know, if, you, if you've got some parity, it's much harder to produce three or four, you know, 10-win teams and to produce playoff participants. So the conference and i'm not i'm not singling out any particular school but the conference is better off when there's a couple of really bad teams because that usually means there's some really good teams as opposed to you know everybody being between 6 and 3 and 3 and 6 in in conference record well it happens in the sec every year and you know they get teams that are bothers that right that's what vanderbilt's yeah, for pans pad the records uh colorado at oregon is i think the most interesting first half of the schedule. Like you got, you know, when you first, if you're only going to watch two quarters, you you start with Colorado at Oregon, but UCLA, Utah and Oregon state, Washington state are back to back. They're both on Fox. I think those two games are going to be the most compelling games of the weekend. And you know, of those two games, if you can only watch one of them, Wilner, you US, UCLA, Utah, Oregon state, Washington state, which game do you tune into? Washington state, Oregon state. I, I just think the the off the field situation is unprecedented and incredibly compelling and inseparable from what's happening on the field with these schools. Uh, it is you know we've never seen this before, and uh, I I just I just think it's it's too interesting. USC UCLA Utah is a really good game. The way we're used to having really good games and and experiencing really really good games, Washington State Oregon State is next level. Yeah, it's got some extra chapters, you know, and it has to me game when I was when I was looking at the score and I was saying that's going to be really close. I wanted to almost predict it would go into overtime. That that's the kind of game that it would be, and that, I think that would be great for Fox. And of course. Those two schools, I think, are looking for a good number on the TV broadcast. I think they'll get it because I think there's going to be people who tune in to see these programs and and you know see how they play. And there, you know, there's still some people out there. I think nationally, you know, who are interested in this story. It's not just a regional story. Uh, yep. make sure they need that, people yeah. to tune in and they need people to to watch how they're playing and think those are those are Power Five schools. Those are Power Five football programs. That's doesn't matter who wins. They need it. What matters is the quality of play and the impression that they leave on viewers. Jonathan Smith does some squirrely things. He'll go for it on fourth and one. He had a fake punt the last time they were in Pullman. Didn't work out. I kind of wonder how he plays this one with that in mind, with people watching. I wonder if he pulls some creative things out offensive side. I don't know. We'll see how this unfolds. All right. I'm John Canzano. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. He's John Wilner. You can read him. Pac12hotline.com. Good luck this weekend with your own picks, and we're back next week. Thanks, everybody.